0: Imagine that you live in the 1830s and you're a regular working class individual. You have some free time, you've saved up a little bit of money and you want some entertainment. One of the main things that people did during this time period is they would go watch concerts, the recitals or symphonies. This was right around the time when Franz Liszt actually instituted the piano recital as something that became popular and accepted in mainstream culture at the time. But there's a problem because you don't exactly know which concert to go to you see this is before the age of recorded music it's before the age when you had albums or Spotify or any streaming services so the only way that you could experience any kind of music was to either watch it live or perform it yourself for most of human history it's been this way and it's really only since the 1920s about that we had modern music technology recording as we know it today hello and welcome to the between movements podcast episode 15 Today, I'm going to be talking about the age of the critic. If you're listening to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other main podcast outlets, be sure to check out my YouTube channel, josh.v.music, where I post performances, vlogs about practice, and I will soon be getting back to my Rachmaninoff transcription project now that I just finished a bunch of accompaniment work. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines musical criticism as a branch of philosophical aesthetics concerned with making judgments about performances, compositions, or both. You can think of musical criticism as a sort of journalism, which should combine factual observation tempered with the aesthetic opinions of the writer. On the positive end of the spectrum, it has the power to launch careers of artists, to bring attention of great works of music to the public, and it should also educate the public about why something is a great work of music or why it's not. However, at its worst, musical criticism has damaged careers, reputations, and slanted audience opinions in a way that is completely unjust and undeserved. Which leaves us with the question does musical criticism have a place in our modern music industry? Now, going back to that person in the 1830s, musical criticism was the main way in which they were able to determine whether or not they should go and see someone perform, go see the symphony, go see this opera. Uh, And very prominent figures were involved in the field of music making, most notably probably Robert Schumann, who actually had his own music journal called the Neue Zeitschrift for music. Apologies for my German. But in this musical journal, he spoke about many people for instance, Johannes Brahms. He w- he helped to launch Brahms' career in a way that might not have happened if not for people's uh, admiration for Robert Schumann and the fact that Robert Schumann regarded Brahms so highly when he was still unknown to most of the general public. Here's a little excerpt from an 1853 article he wrote in this journal called New Paths, talking about Johannes Brahms. Speaking of Johannes Brahms, he says... This young musician was called to give expression to his times in ideal fashion. A musician who would reveal his mastery not in gradual stages, but like Minerva would spring fully armed from Kronos' head. And he has come, a young man over whose cradle graces and heroes have stood watch. His name is Johannes Brahms. Quite the introduction for a young musician who was still at the time relatively unknown. Now, the age of musical criticism remained in full force. The main thing that changed it, like many other things, was the internet and more specifically the arrival of apps like YouTube where people can all of a sudden comment their own opinion. There's a sort of democratization of musical criticism where you don't have to go to the newspaper or a magazine article to see what someone says about it. Everyone can give their opinion. You can upvote a comment and some random obscure person can help to change public perception just through comments on a YouTube page. And we also see this phenomenon in food. When I'm in a new area and I want to decide whether I should go to a coffee shop or a restaurant, I usually go to Yelp or Google reviews. I see how many stars it is, I kind of skim through the reviews and get a general perception, I look at some pictures. It's a completely different age that we live in, and I'm not one to go to the newspaper and read up regular food reviews. However, there are some problems with the general disappearance of musical criticism in the public eye. Think, for instance, about the most popular music videos on YouTube. Are they all necessarily great art, or are they just viral moments caught on camera? Speaking of classical music, I remember one of my previous piano professors complaining that when a lot of his students came to study with him, they didn't really know, they weren't familiar with classic recordings. A lot of them would simply listen to the most recent competition winners, uh, and that was their understanding, that was the knowledge and recordings they had in their mind of these pieces. And so he had to explain, no, these are the great pianists, these are who you listen to, these are the classics. Now, there's something that a lot of even casual fans of classical music are aware of when it comes to recordings. It seems like most of the older recordings are higher quality. They're just performed better. There's more musicality in them. Whereas if you look at some of the more recent recordings or if you're listening to recordings on the radio, where a lot of times they'll just you know give a recent performance or recording of a symphony, they're not always that engaging. They're not always that exciting. Why is that? I think one of the reasons is that many decades ago, it was a lot more difficult to record a piece. You couldn't just go into a studio, record a piano sonata 15 times and come out on the other end fine, and then go back the next day and try it over, which is what a lot of people do now. It was much more labor-intensive, time-intensive, and more costly. You didn't have the ability in the early stages of recording to redo... Uh, You couldn't splice tapes together. You definitely couldn't do any electronic manipulation of the music. What you got was what you got. And when it was recorded onto a record, you maybe had a couple shots at it, and that was it. So because of that, I think artists tended to prepare more readily. Uh, They probably would have performed this piece multiple times ever before going into a studio and trying to record it. And with the modern ease of recording technology, like I bought my microphones, I can record on my piano if I want to. Although, I mean, I would much prefer to get a nice Steinway Concert Grant if I could record. But with the ease of recording comes an overabundance of recordings. With this overabundance of recordings, it's very difficult to sift through them all and try to find something that's good. Most of what we get is managed by the algorithms, Um, search engine optimization, either through Google or YouTube or whatever service you're on. There's a complex series of algorithms which are written by humans, but generally computer driven, that will give you the results that it thinks that people want to see. This is not always the best results, however. And sometimes when I'm looking for what I know to be a very good recording, I have to dig for it. I have to find it maybe on the 10th page of YouTube or or Google search. So then am I advocating for the return of professional musical criticism? Not necessarily. You see, there are a lot of problems with musical criticism, first off being music is a very difficult thing to talk about. Professional musicians spend their careers and their lives learning terminologies, vocabulary that helps them understand what one another is talking about in music, and the general public does not always understand these terms. So you run the risk of writing about music and making it sound very academic and pedantic, something that the layman cannot relate to. On the flip side, however, writing about music can become just flowery and poetic and very vague and metaphorical, so it doesn't really have any true substance. You you don't know exactly what the person is talking about. So in order to write it well, you have to Ride this fine line between the observational part and the poetic part, because people do want something that is nice to read, that has a sort of narrative and poetic structure to it, especially when you're talking about music. Some of you may have heard this very famous quote, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And the verdict is still out as to whether that was Frank Zappa or Elvis Costello or some other musician, but it is very widely quoted And I think with good reason, it sort of makes sense. You're talking about an art form that is bound within time. It is all audio. It is just about the most abstract form of art that you can have, especially when it's lacking lyrics. And really the only good way to pin it down is through recording, which captures the essence of what was done. And even that has all these problems with recording technology, trying to get the most high fidelity sound. And nowadays... It's very difficult to tell what is um, mastered and mixed and what is edited. You you can have many mistakes and cover them up these days and nobody would, would really know. But I think that people still do want to have some sense of professionality when it comes to someone unpacking the music that they're talking about. I think that's one reason why so many music students still attend university because they're looking for someone to help explain these things to them. I think the general public also wants this, but they don't want to be spoken down to, and they don't want to be manipulated. In my experience over the years, I've come up with three things that I have noticed or taken into account when I'm trying to find a good recording. And the first thing is that good recordings stand the test of time. Time is what determines a classic from just a new release. This is true of movies and music. This is true of athletes and all kinds of areas of of life. There's something about time that filters the good from the bad, and it's not always immediately apparent at the beginning what is truly remarkable and what is truly good. So aside from the fact that recording technology was more difficult in the past, even with all of those recordings, the best will usually rise to the top over time. And it is possible to find a very good recording that somewhat fell through the cracks and is generally unknown. But you definitely have to do a lot of sifting and digging, trying to find that needle in that haystack. And I'm not just talking about really old recordings, too. I'm talking about even with uh, modern pianists. Those that are still active today, think Evgeny Kisson or Martha Argrich or Daniel Trifonov or anyone who's still actively performing, their best recordings tend to stick around, you know, after 10 years. They're still widely viewed. They're still widely reposted and so there are things that kind of you see over and over again. The second thing is that good recordings are often controversial. Not always, but a lot of times some of the best recordings tend to spark the most arguments in the comment sections, and I think that's because usually the best recordings have a very individual take and a very strong view on how something should be played. And That makes it exciting on the one hand, but it also makes it potentially offensive on the other hand. Because the artist is taking a risk, because the artist is playing it in the way that they feel is correct or their vision of the piece comes through, it might misalign with what someone was taught in university, what their teacher said, or maybe they've worked on this piece and they really feel strongly that it should be done a different way. Another reason for the potential controversy is plain old jealousy a lot of times people who are jealous will find anything that they can fault in a recording or performance to make themselves feel better so they'll point out oh well they missed this passage here or this was completely you know out of time this particular section was sloppy this section was too loud and so they'll try to tear down a piece saying I don't understand why so many people like this it's not as good as they think The irony of this, of course, is that with all that controversy drives more attention to the piece. So if you're trolling or trying to undermine the work of somebody else, it usually actually has the opposite of the intended effect. Now a third thing to consider is that good recordings do not always have good production value, either audio, video, or both. This is very important to keep in mind, especially for our modern day viewers and listeners because it's so easy to make a recording in 4k with high audio fidelity and very expensive microphones if you just have the money anybody who who has a little bit of cash can make this high production video making themselves look and sound better than they actually are now fortunately with classical music because it's more of a narrative art form that takes place over time production value is not the most important thing I understand if you're listening to pop or definitely like electronic music you need high audio fidelity in order to get the point across that's part of the art itself but with classical music you can hear a phone recording and be like wow this is this is a very good performance a very good performer because everything is there all the phrasing the way that the music is shaped over time, the way that it tells that story can still be there. And sometimes I almost prefer to listen to recordings without looking uh, because I don't always want my judgment to be clouded by the way that something looks. One pianist who took this idea to the extreme was Fyatislav Richter, who later on in his life when he would perform, he would actually dim the stage lights and just play with a small light over his sheet music he he went away from memorized music because he thought that it was egotistical to try to memorize everything and assume that you could remember everything in the score uh, that went against the convention of the time which said that you have to memorize music otherwise it's it's not a legitimate recital so he would play from the score and dim the lights because he wanted the audience to just simply focus on the music not focus on him it wasn't about him now of course I think you want to have both. You want to have good production and good music, and if you can have both, then that's a really, really good thing. But just remember not to be clouded in your judgment by the fact that something looks so pristine or has really clear sound. With classical music, you always got to listen to it over the course of time and ask yourself, is this moving somewhere? Is there a different tone? Has it transitioned harmonically? Is is there a a large set of dynamics and articulation and variety within it or is it just kind of all the same thing? So what does the future hold for classical music criticism? I have no idea but I do think that it is going to continue to change and evolve as it has over the past because no one could have predicted this democratization of musical criticism 20 years ago. It just, the technology just wasn't there. But I do think that as there is this overabundance and proliferation of music, people begin to kind of crave some order to it. Not everybody wants to sift through a mountain in order to find this nugget of musical gold. So I think it might take some form, maybe more video form than written word in a newspaper. But I do think that people are going to try to seek out these ways to find Find the good, find the classics. Let me know what you guys think in the comments. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I will see you on the next video.